Well, we've been in uh, the book of Daniel for a couple of weeks now, and today we pick up in chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 2. We will be putting up each of those slides here so you can follow along if you don't have your Bibles with you. But at this point in the story, God has put Daniel and his three Hebrew companions in a very strategic place. Not only have we heard a little bit about the historical background, but we've also seen how God has been supernaturally working with Daniel and those three. Lord willing, today we're going to get about halfway through chapter 2. This is a very significant story in the Old Testament. We're only going to cover about the first 30 verses today. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we're going to dive back in, uh, go through a few verses at a time. And then I'm going to conclude at the end of our, our time today with just two points of application before we even get into the second half of this chapter. Uh, so please pray with me. Lord, this morning as we come to you, we submit to your word. We desire for it to shape and change us. We want to love and worship you better than we have before we walked in here. Uh, God, help us to learn more about you and truth today. Help us to celebrate what Jesus has done more fully today. And help us to soak in these things. Uh, help us to especially uh, draw out the timely touch points in the story of Daniel that we may be well prepared to manage the things in our lives. To your glory and for our joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to start in this, the first three verses here if you want to follow along with me. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Now this event takes place very early in Nebuchadnezzar's reign. It says right here in the first verse, this is in the second year of his reign. Some commentators think that this event took place two years into Daniel's three-year training program, which is why Daniel and his three Hebrew peers will not be brought into the king with the rest of the wise men in the story. Others would put this after his training was done. And they'd find all kinds of unique ways to kind of make the, the, the timeline work and fit. Nevertheless, Daniel would have been quite young. The youngest, maybe 14, 15 years old, up to maybe at the oldest, 18. Now, you and I have all had bad dreams before. We know what it's like to have a nightmare or have something that kind of troubled us when we woke up in the morning. And I don't know about you, but most of the time after a night like that, it's gone before I finish brushing my teeth. It kind of comes and it goes. It doesn't seem to be very significant. We oftentimes forget about those shortly after waking up. This was not one of those kind of dreams. This was one that was startling, troubling enough in spirit. His sleep left him. He couldn't go back to sleep. Nebuchadnezzar had this on his mind. He knew it was more than just one of those weird, like, oh, that was interesting. But it was a significant dream. And he was right on that account. Now, the Babylonians believed that dreams were very significant and that they could contain omens that demanded an interpretation that would be necessary for a king or another ruler to have access to. So the king Nebuchadnezzar gathers his counselors together to inform them that he has had such one of these dreams. This is significant. I need you all to know about it. And this is how they reply when they hear he's had this dream in verse 4. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. 
Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Now, a few things here. First, he commanded earlier that the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans would be summoned to him. And we're going to see throughout this story, it's usually the Chaldeans who are kind of summarized as those speaking on behalf of the rest of this group of wise men. Now, Chaldeans are a group, a subculture inside of Babylon at this time, but they're probably, this word is probably referring to the astrologers, those who were in the king's palace, those who served as wise men, who looked at signs in the sky in order to predict future events. That's likely what is being meant by the term Chaldeans here in this context. And it says that when they approach the king, they speak to him in Aramaic. They said to the king in Aramaic. So before we move on, you should know that something is just switched in the text that has at least perhaps a bit of significance for our, our look today. Now you might know that the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Old Testament was written almost entirely in Hebrew. But there are a few passages in the Old Testament that were written in Aramaic. A little more than 60 verses in the book of Ezra, a single verse in the prophet Jeremiah, and here is the longest Aramaic section in the Old Testament. This is 200 verses long in the book of Daniel. It runs from here in chapter 2, verse 4, all the way up to Daniel chapter 7, verse 28. In the original language, it goes from Hebrew into Aramaic. And it even gives us that little clue here. You probably have a footnote in your Bible that has uh, in Aramaic down below. This continues on from this point for quite some time. Now, the question we might ask is why? Why would that switch? Why would the language go from Hebrew up until this point, jump to Aramaic for a while, and then back to Hebrew? What's the point in all this? To be honest, we can only speculate. The text doesn't tell us. Commentators have been split on this throughout generations, trying to figure out exactly why. No one knows for sure. Luckily, though, we can absolutely read and interpret Aramaic, so it's not really that big of a problem to what's being said. More a curiosity as to why it would switch. It seems most likely to me, according to what I've even read in the history on this and the commentators, that this is due to the fact that this portion of the book contains subject matter that most directly relates to these other nations that spoke Aramaic. This was the stuff that would be helpful for them to be able to read in their own language. And for the record, the Hebrews could read this as well. Their people were able to speak in this language. While the other passages, the one that preceded this, and after that period of Aramaic writing, those relate most directly to Israel's history. So in other words, when the text is talking very clearly and specifically just about what's going on with the Hebrews and the Hebrew peoples, it's talking in Hebrew, when it switches to talk about big things that have to do with nations and empires that would need access to read that in Aramaic, it's written in that language, that common tongue, and then back to Hebrew again for the end. It seems at least a pretty plausible reasoning to me. Nevertheless, these Chaldeans approach the king, and this is what they say. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. They await the detail of the king's dream. But his response catches them off guard. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb. And your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. 
And to that I say, well, that escalated quickly. I had a dream. Tell me about it. I'm going to kill you if you don't know. Whoa, that's, that's really what's going down here. And it throws these guys off. And it should remind us just how powerful and domineering Nebuchadnezzar is. If the king holds to these conditions, as we have every reason to believe that he will, these men are in big, big trouble. Nevertheless, they have not gotten into their positions because they are quick to panic. And so as you might expect by these stable counselors who stood before the king often, their response sounds reasonable and even calming. Look what happens in the very next verse. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. So they start out by trying to appeal to his reason, but the king isn't having it. He clearly does not trust these men, and he reiterates his threat. It's a very bloody threat, you notice. It's not just you're going to get prison time. It's not simply you're going to be beheaded, hung, shot, that kind of thing. Quick death. It is a torn limb from limb. It even, even promises that your houses will be laid to ruin. Now, this might mean that he's going to kill all their family as well. But at the very least, it means all of your property will be destroyed. So any remaining family you have will be destitute. And all the people looking on will know you've been judged for not being able to tell me the dream. These Chaldeans make a promise in verse 7 there. If you notice that, they said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. King smells what's going on here. Even says as much. He says in verse 9, you've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. This is one of the oldest tricks of false prophecy, bluffing, making a claim that is either general enough to be likely to come true or a more specific prediction with an indefinite timeline. This is what we might call the fortune cookie prophecies. You ever open up that fortune cookie and look inside there? It's always so frustrating when it's not a fortune. It's like, that's not, there's nothing about that's a fortune. But when it is one that is a fortune, you'll oftentimes read something like this. You will learn some interesting news this week. And then when it happens, whoa, the cookie. No, people know. Or it'll say something, opportunity is just around the corner. You know what I mean? The kind of predictions, like a psychic around their little ball might point to, the kind of things that you could, you could make any claim to try to make that tire. Oh, it hasn't happened yet. Just keep waiting, just keep waiting, just keep waiting. Nebuchadnezzar's not an idiot. He knows these tricks. He's even accusing them here of conspiring to convolute a false interpretation. And he's not going to fall for it. You know, some people today think that our ancient predecessors were just a bunch of gullible primates. Dumb enough they'd fall for anything, especially when religion has anything to play into this at all. That's often how Hollywood portrays ancient people. 
And it's why a lot of atheists today mock religion because they just view any, any level of a trust in something supernatural as such superstition that just makes a person foolish at every level. Well, you'll, people believe anything if you just tell them that a God said it. Nebuchadnezzar won't. In fact, he's going to even put them to the test. Oh, really? You're, you're men of the gods. You're holy men who know wise and good. Well, then how about if you tell me the dream? That way I'll know that you actually are being empowered by the gods to do what I've demanded here. It's not true to think that the ancient peoples were dumb. In fact, if anything, the laws of entropy would tell us we're getting dumber. You know, the Babylonians, they did amazing thing back in their days. In fact, around this same time period, it was a Babylonian astronomer who was able to determine with very primitive and ancient tools exactly how long a year was. He was able to calculate to within 25 minutes how long a year was, 365 days and six hours. His calculation was, was super tight. It's really amazing what these people were able to do, even all the way back there, without the calculators and the computation devices that we have access to today, without the kind of access to knowledge that goes around the world prior to anything ever been typed. People were brilliant. And this king does not blindly believe whatever his counselors tell him. Additionally, he feels that this dream is significant enough that the interpretation is worth spending the lives of all of his wise counselors. These guys had to go through three years of training. They were funded by his state. They'd stood before his presence for who knows how many times. It doesn't say, but we can imagine some of these guys had been doing this for quite some time, standing and giving counsel to those that even come before Nebuchadnezzar. And yet he's willing to spill all of their blood, wipe them off the planet over this dream alone. Now, he knows what he's asking. He knows that he's demanding a supernatural interpretation. For all of his wickedness here, Nebuchadnezzar is correct. He's right on at least three accounts. Consider, he's right on this. He's right that the dream was indeed received supernaturally. It wasn't just a bad food he had the night before. He actually... Knew There was something about this dream that's not like the other weird dreams. There's something significant here. Second, he knew that the dream was incredibly significant to his rule and his kingdom. Okay, a God must have given this to me, and this is meaningful for our kingdom. He was right. Third, he knew that it would take a divine miracle to interpret it. I don't just need wisdom. I don't just need smart dudes. I need a divine answer to this question. And I'm willing to spend your lives to get it. He continues on in verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The things that the king asked is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. They make it clear here that the request is without precedent. This isn't the kind of thing that, oh, yeah, occasionally kings wipe out all their counselors. No, no, no king has done this. Do you, do you realize what you're asking? This has not been done. Nobody can make this kind of demand. Who could know the inner workings of the mind or the heart of a man, let alone his dreams? These men know that they will need supernatural help. Furthermore, did you notice this? They don't expect that they will hear from their gods at all. Compare these guys with the priests of Baal. 
on Mount Carmel before Elijah. Elijah goes to a test against them. You might remember that story where the men are uh, saying that Baal will bring down fire to, 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 uh, on the sacrifice to prove that he is God. And, and Elijah goes, you go first. You go. These guys actually imagine and expect that their God, Baal, will respond. These guys have no reason to believe that. Our gods don't talk. Uh, we're, he's not going to say anything to us. We, we can't expect anything. They're just trying to get out of this problem. They do not trust their God's to do anything about this situation. In verse 12, we see that Nebuchadnezzar was not bluffing. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the camp command went out. Tear them limb from limb, destroy their homes. This was a wicked king for a wicked thing for a king to do. Wicked. He does not have the God-given authority to do this, and yet he does. That's one of the themes that we're going to see repeated throughout Daniel. Almost every chapter, you're going to see at least a little bit of this come up. Kings will assume that just because they have the power or the ability to carry out a wicked order, they have the right and the authority to do so. No king has ever been given the authority to make such a demand as this, and certainly not to execute those who wouldn't comply. By doing this, Nebuchadnezzar is disqualifying himself as a civil authority. He's outing himself as stepping beyond his jurisdiction as a civil leader. I want you to consider for a moment. This command should not have been obeyed. The only way that this stuff works, way back then up until today, is when people comply. It's the only way that a king's order actually has weight. All state rule is utterly dependent upon the consent of the governed. Have you processed that before? Do you process that even in our own days right now? In other words, think about it like this. If Nebuchadnezzar were to have made this request, everyone knew it was wrong. It sounds in a moment that the, king's, uh, the leader of the King's Guard, Ariak, doesn't want to have to carry through with this. He's eager to get out of this whole situation. If the people around the king were to heard the order and just said, no, we're not, we're not doing that. <laughs> no, no, we're not going to go kill all those men. Have a snack, take a nap. We're not going to do that. What power would Nebuchadnezzar have had? None. None. All civil power is contingent on the willful submission of others. All state orders are only effective insofar as their citizens are willing to comply. I want you to bookmark that. Because while this is not the point of this passage, admittedly, it's not what this passage is trying to teach us is the limits of a king's authority. It does absolutely set the necessary backdrop for the point of this passage and many others that are going to come in the book of Daniel. We're going to have to explore the way believers should see civil authority in order for us to understand what is happening in these upcoming stories. It is imperative that we remember the limits of a king's authority and to not miss these things when we watch. That was wrong. And weak and cowardly people agreed with the king's wicked demand and were going to comply. Much judgment deserved for Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. See, people were going to do this. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. 
Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. This is a reminder to us that Daniel wasn't present. He didn't even know about this order being given. He didn't even know about it because the wise men were brought in. Daniel and his his partners weren't brought with them. I think it's yet another touch point to make us realize he's not risen to prominence yet. This is the second year of of his rule. I, I, I think he has another year of his training yet to go. But he responds with prudence and discretion. I want you to notice that he even allows the king to appoint a time. He requests for the king. You tell me when you want for me to come back to give you the interpretation and the dream. That's significant. Sounds like Daniel is far more trusting of his God than all those other wise counselors were of theirs. What happens next? Before I read this, I just want to ask you, what would you do? I don't know. If you're really honest with yourself, I bet you many of you are being like, I'd try to find a place to hide. I'd be finding a way to pay off those guards and get out of the city as fast as I could. I might, if I was in this situation, try to appeal to, well, I'm still in training. I'm not a wise man yet. Oh, uh, just let me out of the hook and maybe I'll rise to greater prominence because there's no one ahead of me after that point. Panic whole bunch of potential ways that a person might respond to this. But this is how he actually does respond in verses 17 and 18. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they didn't know yet until he told them, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. They did what all believers should do. They prayed. They appealed to the mercy of God. Shouldn't be at all surprising. That's what believers are made to do. Sometimes we are to look out and realize there's nothing I can do here and acknowledge apart from the supernatural, almighty hand of God working We will not be saved. And they prayed. They spent the night appealing to God, petitioning the Lord. Now you might remember that back in chapter 1, verse 17, it said this about the youths that needed to be prepared in their training. It says this, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So all of them had been given a skill set and learning. And Daniel uniquely had been given understanding in all visions and dreams. Now I want to speak about this real quick here because this is actually quite significant. The spiritual gift given to Daniel was not like a superpower that he could employ at will. Do you notice that? People today who try to understand how spiritual giftings work out, particularly those that are mentioned like prophecy, okay? This needs to be on your document that you walk through when you're trying to understand what is prophecy today? How are we to execute on that? How how are we supposed to think about that? 
This needs to be part of the conversation. Because even back to this Old Testament day where God was speaking through a singular prophet named Daniel to that generation of people, he was not able to draw upon a strength inside of him in order to solve this problem. Daniel did not go, oh, I'm the visions and dreams guy. I got this. I got this. This is what, this is what I do. This is what I do. I interpret dreams, figure it out, solve it. Daniel was powerless to use this gift apart from God's answer to prayer. Isn't that amazing? In fact, we're going to see that exact principle on repeat throughout the book of Daniel. He goes, huh, I had a vision, I had a dream. I don't know what it means. God, unless you answer this, I will not know. Awesome. That's the kind of reliance upon God he had and he needed. Daniel is unable to exercise even that God-given spiritual gift apart from supernatural revealing, prayer, and asking others to join him in it. I want you to keep this in mind, especially regarding New Testament spiritual gifts. It's not a party trick. And for the record, we'll deal with this later Daniel's going to have this supernatural moment take place, and there are occasionally 20, 30, 50 years between the events in which he's actually able to exercise the spiritual gift. Let that be a warning to you for all the charlatans out there who say that on a whim, they can exercise such spiritual gifts in predicting future events and prophesying such things. Even Bible writers of old took decades to be able to make those predictions given by God. Be warned. Continuing on verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have, known, have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. So they pray, they appeal to God, and he answers their prayer. A couple of things. First, they know, acknowledge that God has answered. And they're grateful. This is immediate, but I know brothers and sisters in Christ who've done a really good job in their life keeping track of prayers in like a prayer journal. It's an awesome way to keep track of the things that you're praying for your own good. God doesn't need it. He knows what you need. But this is for our own good. You write those things down and, and then look back someday and see, oh my goodness, do you remember that season where we prayed this ferociously? And then just when the Lord answered it, we just kind of moved on to the next season of life. It's good for us to pause and be reminded by the way God has answered our prayers. Look at that. You remember this? It was not long ago that I found the prayer journal that Laura and I had kind of written in together in the months preceding our move to Utah. This weekend marks eight years for us in this state, coming on out here to plant the Mission Church. And I was just reading through it. It's like just tears. Like, oh my goodness. We just prayed, Lord, give us direction. Lord, give us clarity. We trust you to bring people to help this get going. We trust you to provide for us. We trust, trust you in the provision of our family. Please do all these things. And I was reading through this. And I was like, oh my goodness. Just, Lord, if I... 
Have I, have I gone back and presented gratitude and worship and praise to you for these things at the level that you deserve? And brothers and sisters, we need to remember what God has answered, that we'd be grateful. Answers to prayer produce worship. Daniel wrote a song. He wrote this beautiful poetry praising God for all the things that he had done. He says some amazing things in here. He says, God, it is, it is you who sets up kings and who tears them down. He says, he removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel acknowledged that it is God who set up Nebuchadnezzar and is able to exercise sovereign control over all things, yet he does not blame God for their situation. That's remarkable to me. Instead, he praises God for his mercy in rescuing them. In other words, think about it like this. Who gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream that led to this situation? God did. Who put Nebuchadnezzar in power in the first place? God did. Who planned the overthrow of Jerusalem that would lead to the exiles coming into this place in the first place? God. Who gave Daniel and his three partners favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuch? so that he'd even be able to stand before the king. God, you see where this is coming from? And who now has given the interpretation and the knowledge of the vision itself in order to rescue all the people out of this folly? God, all of it. And Daniel praises God for all that he's done. Much more is going to be said on this exact idea in future weeks because we're going to see this play out over and over again and Larger and larger measures. So we'll come back to the same idea. God is the one who sets up and tears down kings for his purposes. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. And said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? A couple of things here. First, Ariok brings them in in haste. It seems like he is not eager to do the bloody deed of tearing the wise men limb from limb. But he rushes into the king's throne room to tell him... The interpreter is here. Daniel, whom I found, will tell you about this. And we're reminded in verse 26 of Daniel's Babylonian name. It says, the king declared to Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar. Isn't that interesting? You might remember, if you were here with us last week, Daniel's name harkens back to his God of Israel, all the four that were with him. Daniel's name was changed, just like the other three were as well, to be given names that were associated with pagan gods. Bel, in this case. So why do we see that again here? Why is that dropped in right at this point? I think it's to remind us that this king is likely expecting that it is his god, Bel, who's the one responsible for providing Daniel with this interpretation. And that will be corrected soon enough. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men... Enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. 
Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel stands before the king and makes it very clear that he ought not receive credit for this interpretation. He makes sure that Nebuchadnezzar knows that this is God, the God of heaven, who gets the credit for this interpretation and for the vision itself. It would have been so easy for Daniel just to take some pride in his ability to execute on this need, to leverage this moment to make himself look greater in the king's eyes in a self-serving way. How hard would that be? King, as your humble servant, I will use the gifts that I've been given in your service. I mean, he could have done that. Multiple times he makes it clear, no wise men can do this. Only God can reveal this dream. And when he explains that he'll be the one delivering it, he says this in verse 30. This mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. You and I, man, we're just not used to seeing people stand before kings and authorities with this kind of humility. When was the last time a president stood before his people and said, has something really great happened? It wasn't because of me. It just happened, and we should be grateful. You and I know that's not the way it works. We see it in our businesses. We see it amongst people all the time. Taking credit for things they ought not. Now, you'll notice here that Daniel has not interpreted the dream for us yet, and this actually concludes the verses we're covering today. So as an audience, we're still left in suspense as to actually what's going on. We haven't heard the interpretation. We don't even know the dream yet in the flow of the text. We're going to get there next week, and it's very significant, and we need to spend some good time on it. He tells us that this is foretelling future time for him. And the things will be significant not only for Daniel, not only for the Israelites, not only even for Babylon, but even for those who will follow after him and us. But today what I want to do is just wrap up our time with two points of application from what we've seen up until this point, the first 30 verses in this chapter. And the first I want to direct right at the young people in the room. Children, young men and young women. You need to be like Daniel. Daniel was a young man. Just to remind you again, Daniel was probably 14, 15, maybe 17, 18 at the oldest at this time. Daniel didn't wait until someday he would grow up. He would become a man of honor, a man of dignity, of prudence, of discretion. He acted with dignity when it needed to happen. Younger brothers and sisters, this needs to be you. Not to set your heart that some, someday I'll get my life in order. Someday I'll take my faith seriously. Someday I'll, I'll honor God. Maybe he'll use me. And say, I'm going to go through some training. I'm going to go ahead and go to school. I'm going to get lots of good aptitudes and skill sets. I'm going to find a, a, a mate. We're going to get married, have some kids. We're going to start a whole life together. We're going to buy a home. We're going to get the dog. We're going to get our careers in order. And God's going to use me then for something. I need you to know. The entirety of the scriptures tell us over and over and over 
of young men and women being used. Throughout the Bible and Christian history, God uses young men and women in profound ways for his glory and for the good of his people. Scripture's filled with examples. We have plenty that we don't know the ages of these people because it was irrelevant. And others, when we know, sometimes we hear that they're young. David, Ruth, Miriam, Samuel, Isaac, Jacob's son, Joseph, Mary of the New Testament, Timothy in the New Testament. Biblically, one's youth is never an excuse for foolishness. Youthfulness is never an excuse for foolishness. Youths are called to the same faithfulness that their parents are. In 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul is writing to his young pastor friend, Timothy. We don't know how young Timothy was, but he was young enough that everybody else knew him as young. He says this to him, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. It's pretty awesome. Not only, young Timothy, should you be a man of faith, but you should even set an example for even the older brothers and sisters around you. That's an awesome statement. And that's what we see in Daniel. None of us look at Daniel and go, like, wow, he was pretty good. I wonder how good he'd be when he gets to my age. We don't think that. We look back and we watch what he does and go, man, I hope that I would be resolved to not defile myself as Daniel and his friends had just in the chapter previous. I hope that the moment were to come, I wouldn't panic, but I would stand in, in trust and faith before God and I would commit myself to prayer and seek the mercy of the Lord. I hope that I could stand before a king, even a wicked king, with prudence and discretion and act wisely and that I'd be used of God in such a way that I, that I wouldn't get selfish about it and self-serving. I want to leverage that position, that, that moment, to make myself look good, but to demonstrate humility even before the greatest authority in the land. The youth in our day need to know you don't have to wait till you grow up to become a man or woman of God. Be a young man and a young woman of God right now. I was in the Marines, we were constantly told stories of people who've done mighty works in battle, mighty deeds, and they were given to us to be aspirations, that you too should be like this Medal of Honor winner. And I was reminded by a story this last week of one of the most famous Medal of Honor winners in World War II. It was a young Marine whose name is Jack Lucas, and he joined the Marines at the age of 14 by lying on his entry exam. He went in, and after his time of training... He wanted to go to battle, but his, his, uh, his uh, MOS, his occupational specialty, sent him to a place that was farther away from the Pacific Theater where he wanted to go, and all of his brothers in, in arms were going to die. And so he, he deserted one unit, snuck aboard a ship bound for Iwo Jima. He finally goes to the commanding officer of the unit and, and presents himself as, hey, I stowed aboard because I want to go fight. Well, they demoted him, which he couldn't care less about, and they, they gave him a rifle, put him with the unit, and said, okay, you want to go to war? We'll put you to war. He storms the beach at Iwo Jima, which many of you might know is one of the most bloody, terrible battles in all of the Pacific Theater in World War II. At one point, he's with a few other Marines. He's out in battle, and not one, but two grenades get thrown at their group, and he dives on both of them. Dives on one, grabs the second under his chest. That's what this 17-year-old at the time does. The explosion racked his body such that they thought he was dead. They left him there. 
A unit later, marching by, sees that he's actually still alive, gives him medical treatment. 21 surgeries later, he survives with 200 pieces of metal in his body, receives the Congressional Medal of Honor. At the age of 17, did you know the youngest Medal of Honor winner was 13? Joined the Union Army at the age of 11? It's embarrassing what we expect out of our youth today. They are able to do so much more than what we expect out of young men and young women today. For thousands of years, 13-year-old girls helped their mothers give birth to future babies. The boys went out and put food on the table, hunting, foraging, farming, picking up arms to protect and defend their nations at, at 13, 14, 15 years of age. For a 16-year-old to stay home when battle was on the other hill was unthinkable. The expectations for these young men and women have been higher so much throughout our history. It's embarrassing to look at what the Western world has told our youth today. God did not make young men and women to be whiny, entitled consumers. The world expects that of you today. Not God and his word. The world today even has artificially created an entire category of human ordering in order to make this person feel like they can just be a consumer. We call this a teenager, a language that didn't even exist and thought back prior to 100 years ago. The lies that will come at you, young men and women, will tell you that the sole aim of your life today is to consume Your job, they say, is to study and learn and to have fun, spend billions of your parents' dollars while contributing nothing. Guys, that's folly. In fact, the world's even worked hard to extend adolescence. Many of you know this. By telling us that everyone should be pursuing secondary education, college, spending absurd amounts of money they didn't earn in pursuit of an ever-increasing number of utterly worthless degrees. It's laughable. We have such a wrong view of these things today. Young men and women, listen carefully to this. Our culture will do whatever it can to distract and manipulate you for as long as they can. Don't fall for it. I share the gospel every Sunday I stand up here. Every time I open the word of God, I make sure that everybody hears how you can be saved. The only way. And I proclaim that everyone amongst us here is a sinner deserving of the just wrath of God. Hell for forever. That includes you, kids. This is not just for moms and dads. You were born a sinner. You have by your own heart chosen to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. If you can hear this and understand my words right now, you need to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. Don't wait. This isn't the kind of thing, well, maybe when I'm finished college, I'll decide if I want to be a believer. No, set your heart to honor God today. Turn to him. Our perfect God sent his perfect son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, the life you should have lived. And he lived it when he was a kid. He lived it when he was a five-year-old, a 10-year-old. He lived a perfect 13-year-old life, a perfect 18-year-old life at every possible level. And at the end of that life, he went to die on the cross bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. And only if you believe in him can you have eternal life. So do that. Repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. You can understand this. People wonder sometimes, why don't you have like a children's ministry for older kids? Because your six-year-old should be able to sit through this. Really, don't dumb them down. They can hear this. Listen, they're gonna sit like a six-year-old sits, not like a 40 or 50-year-old sits. And it's fine. 
We want for your kids to grow into these things. Young men, young women, take your faith seriously now. Be like Daniel. 1 John 2.14 says this, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This isn't young men. Someday, maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe, you'll, maybe you'll muster up the courage and defeat the evil one. No, now, young men, the word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. You know how to make a super wise 60-year-old? 40 to 50 years of practice, that's how. Start young. Parents, switching gears to you for a moment. Your duty in raising your children is to work yourself out of a job. Set the bar high. Launch those arrows into the world. Even your little ones, even little kids, those are future men and women of God. They're not mere inconveniences. They're great allies. Don't buy into the cultural lies any more than we want to warn them from those things. A mentor of mine once told me about his dad who could fix anything. He, he said he could even do this with nothing short of a roll of duct tape and a hammer. He said his mom was a master cook. She could make a gourmet meal out of a sack of rice and a salt shaker. I go, how about you? What can you do? He said, nothing. Why? Well, they did all of it. Anything that needed to get fixed, my dad fixed it. Any domestic thing needed to happen, my mom, my mom took care of that. I, I never did any of that. And he lamented before me how it was much later in life he had to realize he had to change even his own parenting tactics for his children because that was a discipleship failure. Brothers and sisters, we need to teach our kids how to swing a hammer, shoot a gun, wash and mend their own clothes, spend money wisely, cook their own meals, fix things around the house, troubleshoot car issues, weed the garden, and to do all of this to the glory of God. Your kids. And don't wait until they're 25 to show them. That, that's the thing. It's always, it's always surprising to me. When I was a youth pastor, people come up to me frantic. Their kids are like 17, almost 18 years old. Ah, ah, I got one year left. And I'm like, well, what have you been teaching up until now? Ah, ah. We need to be investing into our kids at a young age and expecting them that by the time that they head out of the house, whatever that looks like for your home and the culture you live in, that they're men and women of God. We need to think of our kids like this. Set the bar high. Teach them how to live and to do all these things to the glory of God. Disciple your kids every day. If you know how to do something, teach it to your kids. And I mean kids, I mean little ones. And watch them outpace all of their worldly counterparts. And maybe, maybe in the next generation, they will have grown in wisdom over such a period of time that when the world is panicking, they will look to your stable children who for 20, 30, 40, 50 years have been trained to take their faith seriously and to be men and women of dignity. And the world will look to them. Praise be to God. Let's set them up to win. Second application point as we conclude today is you and I are to pray like Daniel. In what way did Daniel demonstrate his living, live in such a way that we should even honor that young man? 
How did he set an example? In many ways, here we watch him pray, pray, pray. Unlike the false gods of the Babylonians and the Chaldeans, our God hears. And so we can trust. The same God who gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs hears and speaks to his people. Prayer then ought not merely be just a last resort, but the primary way in which believers face challenges. God has taught us how to pray in his word. Jesus has taught his disciples how to pray. We see it modeled over and over and over again. We're even told in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let us be men and women of prayer. And let's model that right now. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. Let the reading of your word always be accompanied with a talking with you, with a crying out to you to embed it in our hearts, to apply it to our days. Father, I pray that we would take seriously our faith, the things that are going on around us, that we would seek your will for what we're to do in light of these things, that we would not be those who panic and run around like crazy trying to find a whole bunch of a variety of different ways to solve worldly problems, but that we would go to you and trust that you will provide and trust that you will do what is best for your glory and our joy eternally. So Lord, let us yield to you. Let us demonstrate that. Let us model it before our children. Let us teach it to them so that by the time that they are eight, nine, ten years of age, they already know what it means to pray and how to offer that up before the Lord. That when they're 13, 14, 15 years old, the kids around them will look to them and go, man, you're different than me. How are you able to do what you do and think like you think? And by the time that they're 20 and 21 and 22, when they're seeking somebody to marry, they will do some with wisdom. Already having practiced being young men and women of God. Lord, I pray that we would become the kind of people that so eagerly run to you, fall to our knees, that we'd be known as those who pray. That even the non-believers around us, when they find a, a bad diagnosis from their doctor, will come to us in the workplace and say, hey, uh, you're one of those praying people. Can you pray for me? Lord, I pray that we would let that even be a witness before the watching world, that they may see our good deeds and glorify you in heaven. Lord, teach us what it means to be a people of prayer. Wherever there are obstacles for us, wrong thinking, wrong organizing of our time and our minutes, our distraction, kind of living, I pray you'd help us with those things that we may grow in this. We may be more like Jesus who set aside time to pray, who trusted you. And yes, even Daniel. So Lord, make us a church full of people like that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.